Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how it provides for us wisdom and insight uh, for all the problems that we experience here in this life. And we'd ask, Lord, as we continue in this marriage reset and reinforcement uh, series that you would bless, that you would have these verses that are given today just become lodged in our minds, that we might follow them and, and be a part of what you're doing and what your will is, Lord. May we be able to submit to it in a loving way and not with a rebellious heart, Lord, but help us to be submissive to your spirit as your spirit guides and leads us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are on part four of the marriage reset and reinforcement. And the first three are on the website if you want to go back and listen to those. And we began with relationship. And today we're going to get into riches and then we will get into respect. And so those are the three main areas that we have to deal with. It's communication, the money, and the love and submission. Those three areas. Now there are a couple peripheral ones that we could touch on, but I've given you the scriptures. Remember what they are. I want to say them every time. First Peter chapter three, Colossians chapter three, Ephesians chapter five, um, through the beginning of Ephesians chapter six, and also first Corinthians seven and the song of Solomon. Now, if you didn't get those, if you haven't been writing those down, those are going to be on the website and you can listen there. Now, this idea of money, you know, money, sometimes we covet money. Even inside a marriage, like this is my money and, and that's your money. This is my paycheck and that's your paycheck. And one of the first things a financial counselor will tell you to do is make sure that you don't look at it like that, that you look at it as our money. Because becoming one in the book of Genesis and also in the book of Ephesians, we're supposed to become one. But this idea of men and women and money, that we're really not the same, I think it holds true. In the Huffington Post, of all places, they did an article, wrote an article about men and women and how they save and spend differently. Men save 75% more over their lifetimes on average than women. Men, median savings is $40,500 over their lifetime. Women's median savings is $12,400. Now, if you immediately jump to, well, they spend more. You know, well, hold on. Men with more savings uh, that have less debt is 60%. 60% of men have more savings and less debt. Women with more savings and less debt, 49%. And then in today.com, the news, uh, they wrote this, which gender spends more on impulse it says men were significantly more likely than women to spend serious money on that unplanned purchase, like a car or a boat or motorcycle, while just 7% of women said they had spent $500 or more, 21% of the men did. Men also made more impulse purchases of $1,000 or more. Women tend to keep their impulse purchases small, under $25. But they didn't say every day. You know, it's simply, just kidding. It's not every day. Men are more than twice as likely to make an impulse purchase when they are intoxicated. Of course, for everyone in here, that's not going to be an issue. So women are twice as likely to buy impulsively when they are sad. Happy wife, 
happy life. Do you remember that? (laughs) Women are more likely to regret making an impulse purchase. 52% of the women versus 46% of the men said they experienced buyer's remorse at one time or another. So that impulse spending, that impulse buying, we really should try to avoid that. I remember going through a financial class and they said, you know, give it 24 hours or 48 hours and pray about it if it's going to be an impulse type situation where you want to buy something. And so this idea of financial unity, we want to become one in what we feel and think about money and how we spend it and how we save it. Now, all of this is predicated on the husband loving the wife and the wife lovingly submitting to the husband. You cannot have harmony biblically unless these two things are present, where the husband loves his wife and the wife submits to the husband. So I'm going to give you some helpful guidelines. If money is an issue between the two of you, if you follow these steps... Even if you don't follow these steps, it will provide a little bit of peace in the household. And what I'm going to give you are scriptures. God has a lot to say about money and how we spend it, how we save it, what we're supposed to do with it. And if we just simply say, okay, no matter what we agree or disagree about, this is what we're going to do. If you do that, there will be peace in the household. You won't be arguing over money, money, will, well, you might still argue if you have a propensity to argue anyhow, but this idea that you just follow what the Lord says, it's simple. We will end up having enough money. He provides for us enough money for our needs, unless we're under some kind of discipline or something like that, it's where we need to have God get our attention. Everything will work out good for us if we simply pay attention. Now, that is the general rule. Sometimes God determines that individuals are going to suffer. They're going to suffer with a lack of income. They're going to suffer with a lack of savings. They're just not going to have money at some time in their life. And God is sovereign, and he can do that, but he knows our situation. He knows where we are. And, uh, you know, David, King David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And so whenever we have a genuine need, God says... If you ask anything in my name and in parentheses and other parts of scripture according to his will, you have it. So if God wants something for you, you're going to have it. All you have to do is ask him for it. Now, I want to make this little parenthetical thought on the side here. God is not a sugar daddy. God does not show up and say, oh, is that what you want? Okay, I'll give it for you. He doesn't give us anything that isn't good for us. And if, if, like you're playing the lottery, how many people have been ruined by winning the lottery? Probably most of them. If they've won a significant amount, they don't know how to spend it. They don't know what to do with it. I, I love hearing the fact that some people out there, if they play the lottery, they wait till like the very last day and they've talked to an attorney, they have talked to a financial counselor if they're going to win and they know exactly what they're going to do with it. And by the way, that's not an endorsement for the lottery. I think it's kind of a scam. And, uh, you know, if your chances of winning, you, you have a better chance of being struck by lightning uh, than winning the lottery. But those people who do win it, I love hearing the stories that they have taken time out and they're actually planning what they should do with their money. So this idea of being unified with money, number one here, a helpful guideline, it is not yours 
and mine, it is ours. It is not yours and mine. It is ours. Everything a man has should be devoted to his wife. (laughs) You might say, everything? Yeah, everything. All the money you have, all the riches you have, all the assets you have, it's supposed to be all geared for the provision of your wife and your family. Well, don't I get anything? Yeah, you get your wife and your family. That's what you get if you are providing. And that is worth more than gold and riches and power, all of that. If you have your wife and your children, it is good. Everything a couple has should be combined. I'm going to say that again just for emphasis. Everything a couple has should be combined. If you have separate bank accounts, separate CDs, separate retirement accounts, you're really not becoming one. And that is a commandment in Scripture. And when God said to become one in Genesis and Ephesians, when he was talking, and also in the Gospels, when he talks about that, he's not simply saying physically. He's, he's talking mentally. Have you ever seen the retired couples? I've seen this a couple of occasions. We, Patty and I, when we have traveled before, you know, we'll just sit down and we'll have a cup of coffee or some ice cream and we'll just watch people go by. And when we have traveled or just been down to downtown San Diego, we'll watch the older couples go by. And they walk in lockstep. I, I saw this one couple. They had, both of them had red windbreakers on, brown pants and white shoes, dressed exactly the same walking exactly the same and they kind of looked exactly no not not exactly the same but the way that they communicated and they were elderly and you know it's just like wow they they have truly become one they are really not distinct in what they believe what they hold to as far as doctrine is concerned this is for the person who is inside the church or what they hold to even politically religiously economically, culturally, you become one. And working that out, like if people come from two diverse cultural backgrounds, you have to somehow come towards the center on those cultural backgrounds. If one person, say, comes from South America or over in Africa or over in Europe, where the culture is completely different. When we went to uh, Ireland years ago, Uh, They gave us a whole class on what to say and what not to say to somebody. Things that we think would just be completely uh, okay to say are not okay to say. Like, for instance, and you'll have to look this up, but I'm just going to tell you. We used to have a lead guitar player. His name was Randy. And if I was to go with him over to Ireland and we were in a crowd of people and I yelled, Hey, Randy, that would not be good because Randy in Ireland means something completely different than what you think it means. Uh, Let's just say it means that somebody is a little amorous. Okay, and so if you yelled that out in a crowd, everybody in the crowd would turn and look at you like, what are you saying? Oh, you're wrecking my head, you know, is what they'd be saying. Or something like um, you don't 
say you want to use the restroom. Doesn't mean what you think it means or what's a serviette as opposed to a napkin. And if you just start saying these things, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Well, just molding into a culture like that, it takes a little bit of effort. And as husband and wife are coming together as one, it takes effort, which means things have to be shaved off. Things have to be abandoned. Those things which are not crucial for your relationship have to be done away with. If you want your relationship to survive and thrive, you work towards the center of becoming one. Your guideline is the scripture. You want to make sure the scripture is what dictates how you behave and what you believe. So everything a man has should be devoted to his wife and everything a couple has should be combined. Genesis chapter 2, 24 And this is what I was quoting earlier. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Again, it's not just physically. It is this idea of everything becoming one. Ephesians 5.31 repeats that same thing in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus said this, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And Ephesians 5.25, husbands love their wives just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. Now, how much did he love the church? He died for the church. If a husband just gives up his money, income, wealth, prosperity for his wife, he's not dying. He may think he's dying on the inside, but he's not dying. And none of us have gone that far where we've had to die for our wives. I mean, literally, because we're here right? And so if God says Jesus died for his bride, the church, we are to follow that example and die for our wives as men. Now, secondly, another guideline. Now, this one is pretty obvious. Spend within your income limits, save a little each month. Spend within your income limits and save a little each month. And if you say, I never have any money left at the end of the month, what does that mean? It means you're spending too much. And if you say, but I've cut everything I can cut, well, maybe you have to move. I don't want to move. Then get another job. You see how the logic follows? But we say, I don't want to work that hard. (laughs) Well, really? What does the Lord want you to do? You see, that's where we start saying, now, wait a second. I don't want to have to work. I'll die if I... No, you won't die if you have to work a little harder. Sometimes both husband and wife have to work. You know, if that's the case, Proverbs 31 woman, she considers a field and she purchases it, which means she can also earn an income. She doesn't have to remain at home barefoot and in the kitchen and just popping out kids one every year, you know, something like that. That's that's not what scripture's talking about. Scripture is talking about this idea that we spend what we are given, but we also save a little. And there's a reason why we are to save a little according to Scripture. But in Proverbs 21.20, it says, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Which means if you get a paycheck and you spend that whole paycheck and you have to go down to Dollar Tree or someplace and get a payday loan at an exorbitant rate, confiscatory rate, then you're not budgeting correctly. You want to make sure that you have money left after your paycheck is given to you and after all your bills are paid. Now, it may not be very much, but God says, basically, he gives us the insight to cut back. So the third thing is stay out of debt. Now, this is a hard one. 
Romans 13.8 says, let no debt remain outstanding. And that would be in the NIV. In the King James, it says, owe no man anything but to love one another. And in another version, it says, be in debt for nothing but to love one another. So be indebted because somebody has shown you love or vice versa that you owe them some gratitude and some loving kindness, that type of thing. And so when scripture says you're not supposed to go in debt, now let's look at it in our culture. Does that mean you don't borrow to buy a house? Well, I think all of us in here have borrowed to buy a house. What if you saved up money and bought it outright? That's a plus. And then you just move right into the house and go, it's mine. No, it's the Lord's. And he gave it to you. But, you know, people have done that. I think it was, if I remember correctly, I'm just going from memory here. I think it was Mario Cuomo whose parents, they saved up for like 20 years to buy a house. And they bought the house. I think he's the old governor of New York. And they bought a house cash outright. And I talk about being great. Now, in our economy... Rent is even more than house payment. Now, if you don't have a down payment, uh, you may be paying a lot for rent. And so this idea, well, what about a car? It is good to make sure that you have enough money and you can buy a car for cash. And so somebody says, well, I can't buy that $40,000 truck with cash. What does that mean? Charge it? Well, maybe you don't need a $40,000 truck. You know, something like that. But we we see things out there and our flesh gets a hold of us and we want something. Well, what if you can only afford a $4,000 car? Well, I don't want a $4,000 car. I want a $40,000 car. You see, if if we just simply follow what God says, if it's within our ability, like for instance, if you need to have a credit card uh, today to buy anything online. You can't buy online, and you can usually save a lot of money buying things online rather than from a brick-and-mortar store. And there is counsel out there that you should not have a credit card either. They should operate all in cash. And I get that. I, I understand that people want to do that. And it also puts off any expenditures for any items which may be out there. Now, here I'm just going into general wisdom and counsel, and this is what a counselor, a financial counselor, would tell you. It's better not to owe anybody anything. But if you do have to have a credit card, you better make sure you're paying that thing off every single month. That you don't buy something unless you have money to back it up and you're doing it that way or a prepaid credit card, something like that. You just don't want to find yourself in that condition. Now, even I, you know, I found myself with debt like that, credit card debt. And then when I found I don't have any credit card debt, I I don't have any credit card debt right now that I'm aware of, right? (laughs) And so, <laughs> what are you talking about? And, and so, it is so freeing not to have any credit card debt. You're not thinking about, well, I'm paying 21%, and if I don't make a payment here, and all they want is $37 on $4,000. What a great thing that would be. You know, $37, I can handle that. I can handle $37 a month. Yeah, and if you look at how long it takes you to pay that off, it's like 20 years. 
to pay that off. It, it just makes no sense. You, you think you're saving some money by buying something online at this discount rate, but you put it on a credit card and it's still not paid off the next year when Christmas comes along and you've already paid double for whatever it is you purchased the last Christmas. And it just is not filled with wisdom. It's filled with foolishness. And if you say, well, I got to buy presents. Really? What if you went to somebody and said, you know, I would love to give you something, but all I can give you is my friendship. Tell that to your kids, right? <laughs> you understand the dilemma we're in, and so we need to be smart about our money, to save just right, have a little bit extra for anything that would come up over there. And, you know, if we do these things, there will be so much peace in the household. Then, fourthly, plan to leave something for your children. Proverbs 13:22 says, "A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous." Now, what this basically means is for those who come after you, you save something up and you give it to them. Now, it may not be a lot, but you know, if if we're planning in that direction, we help out our kids. I remember my parents helped us out when we purchased a home. And that was such a blessing. And I want to, when I expire, when we expire in this life, I want to be able to leave a little something for them. Uh, I don't want my kids or my grandkids to be disappointed. You know, like, so what do he leave for us? Anything? You know, no, he spent it all. <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to be nice to my kids. Now, there can be relationship issues. Maybe it may not be wise to give something to your children. But again, I'm speaking in general terms. In those general terms, this is what God says to do. Save up for our children and our children's children so when we expire, they have a blessing. Now, fifthly, do not co-sign for another. Let me just read this to you. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have struck hands in a pledge for another, in other words, for another person, you say, I will back up what they owe you. It says, if you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, to free yourself. Since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands, go and humble yourself, press your plea with your neighbor, allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids, Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the snare of a fowler. In other words, it's going to kill you if you co-sign for somebody else. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-six: Do not be a man who strikes hands in pledge or puts up security for debts. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. So God gives us a warning not to co-sign. Now you might say, but my kid needs a car, and I don't have the money. Well, in hindsight, should you have been saving money? Well, yes. And you, you might say, well, what about now? I didn't save money back then. What are the... There is this thing called a bus. I'm not going to put my kid on a bus. There's a bicycle. A bicycle? What do you mean? What, what if they have to go to Kearney Mesa from Lakeside to work on a job? They have to get up early. You know, that it's this idea that we make excuses for why something should happen. Now, my girls, uh, when my girls were growing up and my son, I made sure they had cars. But guess who owned the cars? Me. I didn't co-sign for them. I just said, 
it's me. Now, yeah, I think that was the case with all four of my kids. And then when it came time, when they all graduated, I said, guess what? It's yours. And you get to take over all insurance payments. It's all yours. I would just transfer everything to them is what I would do. And so that's what we have to keep in mind. And I remember in a family member of ours wanted uh, one of my brothers to co-sign and the family member just got very upset that my brother would not co-sign. And my brother's a believer, and he, and he came to me, and he goes, well, what would you have done? I said, not co-signed, because Scripture says, do not co-sign. And I'm telling you, people get upset. Now, if, if you, again, I'm going to talk about the lottery, not that any of you are just wasting a bunch of money on the lottery, you know, and not that you would even consider it wasting. You, it's between you and the Lord on that. But if you do that, and you win a whole bunch of money, how many friends do you instantly gain? The family, if you were to win like $2 million, people around you would start saying, you got enough. You can pay for this. You know, it's no big deal. Come on, you got some money. I was just talking to a guy who is a a sailor skipper. He actually races boats around the world. And he said he knows this guy who is a billionaire. And there would be guys that would uh, sail with him around the world. And he said, you know, when they'd pull into port or something and they'd go get a meal, this billionaire's lament was none of the guys that he has supported over all of these years that sail with him have ever bought him a meal. And it's like they're taking advantage of his wealth. And yeah, he can afford it. He can. But it's just some gratitude. You know, we don't want to be taking advantage of somebody else's wealth for our own benefit just so that it will benefit us and nobody else. We want to make sure we consider others better than ourselves, that we should toe the line for ourselves. Proverbs twenty-seven thirteen: Take the garment of one who puts up security for a stranger. Hold it in a pledge if he does it for a wayward woman. In other words, somebody is really foolish if they're co-signing or they're putting up a pledge for somebody else or they're saying, I will take care of the debt if they don't. Scripture says just avoid it. Number six, do not spend and then not repay. In other words, don't run up a charge card and then not pay them off. Proverbs 37 says, verse 21, the wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. I was having a conversation last week with somebody in the church, and they were saying they know this guy that he files bankruptcy just to spend more. So he spends more, goes, files bankruptcy, encourages others to do it. Say, see, you can do this. And then after seven years, you can do it again. You can file bankruptcy again. What does scripture call that person? That person is called wicked. Now, the individual that I was talking to, I asked them, is this person a Christian? Well, they claim to be. That's even worse. You know, if somebody, it's one thing if a person of the world does it, it's another if a believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ, borrows all this money and then, you know, that's it. I'm filing bankruptcy. Or what if you were coming to the end of your life and you went out and applied for as many charge cards as you could get because maybe you had terminal cancer or something and you went on a world cruise and you just went around the world and said, I'm dying anyhow, you know, hey. I get my 
money and I don't have to worry about it when I die. The only problem is God could do a miracle and you'd survive. You know, and, and then you would have to pay back all of that. It's just foolishness to do that. And we are not supposed to go around just patting our flesh, so to speak. Money, it, the, it's not money that is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And so we want to keep that money far from us. We want to make sure that we're not attached to it like our arm is attached to the rest of our torso. Number seven here. Remember, God wants us to produce an income. Now, what does this mean exactly? Well, first, let me give you the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 4, 28 says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. So it gets the reason why we would work, why we would produce an income so that we can share with others who aren't as fortunate as us. Luke chapter 6, verse 38 also says, Give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, does this mean you can't retire? That you can't stop working? That doesn't mean that at all. But in God's economy, you still need to produce an income. You go, how, how does that work? Well, if you got enough money and you can put it into some kind of accounts and, and produce uh, more than enough for you to live on and you can bless others with the income that you have, that's the purpose. If you can do that, that's great. You don't have to be, quote, unquote, employed in a company, but God never wants us to stop working to bless others. You see the difference? If, If, for instance, I decided okay, I've got enough money, I'm just going to stop working and I'm just going to live off of what I have and it's all for me and for nobody else. If that's how I live, that is wrong according to Scripture. We're supposed to live in such a way where with whatever means we have to survive, we are always given to others. Now, God says to obey is better than sacrifice. God wants obedience He's not so much after the sacrifice that you would give with your income. He wants your heart, and then he wants you to be able to give on top of that. So this idea that once we finish our work, that we just go into our little bubble and we just provide for ourselves, well, we're not done yet if we can't provide for something or something for somebody else. That's how it's supposed to work. Now, in my economy, I'm going to work until I can't. I, I just feel that that's what I'm supposed to do. And you know, I don't know if I'll be up here at 90 years old drooling on the lectern, but whatever God would have me do, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to continue until, until he says, you've had enough and you're going to come to the end. And all of us will eventually come to that point in our lives where we won't be able to do anything. It's just when we are able, he wants us to produce an income in order to help others who are out there. Number eight, God wants us to be givers to the church and to others. Now, this is for the believer. Now, when it comes to this idea of tithing, tithing originated in the book of Genesis with Abraham. Do you remember who he paid a tithe to? Melchizedek, that's correct. Now, Melchizedek was king of Salem. Uh, Prince of peace is what he was called. Uh, Salem was Jerusalem. 
up there. Some people actually believe it was Jesus Christ. He was a priest and a king. You don't have that in scripture in any other place except for one. Jesus is a priest and a king. As far as the Jews were concerned, you did not combine the two. A priest could not be a king and a king could not be a priest. But Melchizedek was both. And Jesus is not only a priest and a king, but he's also a prophet. So Jesus is all three. And I'm, I'm sure that Melchizedek was probably a prophet too. You know, so that's why when you read in the book of Hebrews about Melchizedek, it points right to Jesus Christ. And he is a, a prophet, a priest after the line of Melchizedek and not after the Levites. And so you look at that when the Levites came along and the tithing was instituted inside of the Mosaic covenant, it was not 10%. It was 23 and a third percent. And on top of that would be an offering. So you could give up to 30% or 40% or 50% of what you had as income to the Lord or to people who are around you. But God has remained consistent from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. We are to be givers. We are to shell out funds. If you see somebody who is in need, you give. And I went through this a little while ago. I'm just going to read these to you, and I have scriptures for all of these. I'm just going to give you the addresses on some of these. But this is how we're to give. Giving should be done willingly and according to your ability, Acts chapter eleven twenty nine, and Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. And if you don't get it all written down, you can go back and listen to the message on the Internet. Secondly, giving should, be, it should never be done in order to get something from God. I remember when I was a first a Christian, I did this. I bargained with God. I said, God, if you, if you do this for me, I'll give you this much. And you know what? He answered my prayer. He gave me exactly what I asked for. And later on, he knew that I would get the teaching like, uh-uh-uh, you're not supposed to do that. Did you learn a lesson? And oh, I learned the lesson. You're not supposed to bargain with God. You're not supposed to say, God, if you heal me, I'll give you this or I'll give you my life, okay? But you got to heal me first. Kind of like Jacob, dirty sneaky thief. That's what Jacob means. Jacob in the Old Testament, dirty sneaky thief, conniver, heel catcher, that type of thing. If you bless me, then you'll be my God. Oh, really? Is that how it works, huh? Well, God decided to do that anyhow. He showed him grace, but that's not how we're supposed to operate. And that would be in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 24. It talks about Simon the sorcerer thinking that he could gain the Holy Spirit by money, by purchasing. Thirdly, giving should be directed towards God. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, we're to give of our money towards God. And also, fourthly, it's to be given to men. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35. This idea, if we see somebody in need, if you have money, you know, there, there have been times where, like God has told me, maybe you should give something to this person. And not that I hear him say, maybe you should give something to this person. I go, what? He doesn't, it's not like that. You just get this sense, maybe I should help out. And usually when God does that to me, it will be like, okay, I'll give him 20. And God goes, no, more. And you hear God go, uh-huh, God, more, uh-huh. I don't want to give more. You know, I, I, I thought I'd just give him this much. And God goes, I'm waiting. 
You know, and it, it's like, okay, and we're supposed to give sacrificially, which we will get to. Also, we should never give under compulsion. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse seven. If I was to be up here and I would, I was to tell you, you'll get blessing in heaven if you bring your seed faith up to this altar right here and you put down your thousand dollar check and God will multiply it for you. And if you don't, you're a bad Christian. That's being under compulsion. That's putting you under guilt. It's like, Give me a break. If I ever do that, just shoot me. All right? Going on. We should always give generously. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2 and through 4. With whatever measure we give to others, God will bless us back. Now, remember, we're here for just a smidgen of time. And we're in heaven for the rest of eternity. And when we get to heaven, God is going to return to us in kind with what we have given here on earth. And so how much do you want when you get to heaven? God, God will toss you a roll of quarters. There you go, buddy. That's all yours. You know, or are you going to have this palatial estate? And I'm speaking metaphorically, but you get the understanding. If we're going to give to God's work, we're supposed to give generously. Then we should give sacrificially. The widow's might in Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Also, we're to give systematically first corinthians chapter 16 verses 1 and 2 like every week you know we're supposed to do this or whenever it comes up that we're supposed to give something to someone when we give to the lord he credits our account in heaven that's philippians chapter 4 paul was talking to the philippian church about crediting to their account in heaven what they give here on earth and when it give uh, when we give it's pleasing to god god's happy that we give what would be the flip side of that? He'd be unhappy if we didn't give. Spouses need to agree on how much to give and when, either to the church or to people. This is the process of becoming one. You actually have to talk about it. You know, if one person, if the right hand is saying, I'm giving this much, and the other side says, we have to buy food this week? Well, but the Lord will provide. You know, you could be testing the Lord too. We want to make sure we never arrive at that point that we're just kind of anticipating what lies ahead. You have to forecast. Like, do you forecast when you drive to work in the morning? Do you look at your little Google Maps or your ways and, and say, well, is there going to be a lot of traffic that way? You kind of, if you're going on a trip, you check those things. You want to make sure that you're not going to run into a problem. Well, the same thing applies here. If you're giving to somebody or someone now there are going to be the times where the lord just says do it and you do it and guess what you have to trust and that's where a wife needs to be submissive to the husband and the husband needs to lovingly show the wife this is what we're doing and the husband needs to say if it doesn't work out then it's all on my shoulders because the husband after all is responsible he's the one that makes the final decision or he's the one that gets the credit or the demerit because of the decision he has made. As long, what a great place for the woman to be. The woman can say, I don't know, honey. Why don't you decide? And he gets to decide. Now, he can turn to his wife and say, well, what do you think? Well, are you asking me? You know, she might say something like that. Whatever she says, rely on her counsel. But you get to make the final decision. If she goes, fine, with her eyebrows down, it's good. She has her eyebrows up. She goes, fine. You know something's wrong. You know, it's like, okay, we better work on this a little bit more. You know, it's that body language thing that's going on. 
Now, also, as we give, we need to trust in the Lord's provision. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. It always seems like we never have enough. You know, even the richest people in the world, do they stop and they say, I have enough. They don't. They just keep on making it, you know, and banking it and spending it. And it's never enough. And you get that much money. You're one of the richest people in the world. I think it becomes an ego thing. So we want to make sure we develop common goals. We develop those common goals in a selfless manner that we budget. You know, uh, I was talking to Les about this because he does the financial seminar. If you have questions about finances, Les, raise your hand. If you have questions about financial matters, you can talk to Les. He'll sit down and he'll say, you know, this is what you should do. And I'm sure he would take you to all these scriptures too and say, you know, this is what you should do with your finances. This is how God would guide you. Now, when it comes to specifics out there, you know, your investments, that type of thing, it takes a multitude of counselors to find out what you should do with that stuff. And you, you just need to make sure that you're saving some and be wise with the money that God gives us. And he has blessed us so much in this country. Nobody needs to be starving. It's just we get in trouble when we want things and we don't have money to pay for it. I I knew somebody really well that used to have a saying, rust, dust, and bust, crack, chip, and peel. Anything you get in this life, that's what's going to happen to it, including your own body. Your body is going to go the same way. You're not going to take anything with you at all when you die everything that you're going to have in heaven as far as reward has been sent on ahead so we have to have the eternal perspective do not have the selfish temporal perspective when it comes to finances and income and so that's pretty much what we want to do as far as our a relationship with money and with each other is concerned now i'm going to give you a little taste for next week when it comes to respect now this patty told me about this it was uh, skip heitzig he gave this in a message and he got it from a book that he was reading and somebody else sent him the message as far as husbands and wives uh, wives are concerned the interaction what we expect from one another as far as uh, loving kindness and sacrifice and respect and honor and all of those things this is what The ideal husband and the ideal wife is what every woman expects and what every man expects when they get their spouse. This is it. The ideal husband, what every woman expects. This is what a woman expects. And then I'm going to tell you what she gets. What she expects. She expects to be number one. She expects he will be a brilliant conversationalist. She expects... A very sensitive man, kind, understanding, and truly loving. She expects a very hardworking man. She expects a man who helps around the house by washing the dishes, vacuuming floors, and caring for the yard. She expects someone who will help his wife raise the children. She expects a man of emotional and physical strength. And she expects a man who is as smart as Einstein, but looks like Buzz Coburn. I I mean, Rob... I mean, Robert Redford, right? Now, this is what she gets. He always takes her to the best restaurants. Someday, he may even take her inside. And this is what she gets. 
He doesn't have any ulcers. He just gives them. Anytime he has an idea in his head, he has the whole thing in a nutshell. He's well known as a miracle worker. It's a miracle when he works. He supports his wife in the manner in which he is accustomed. He's letting her keep her job. He is such a bore that he even bores you to death when he gives you a compliment. And he has occasional flashes of silence, which makes his conversation brilliant. The ideal wife, whatever man expects, always beautiful and cheerful, could have married movie star, but only wants you. This is the ideal wife, what every man expects. Hair that never needs curlers or beauty shops. Beauty that won't run in a rainstorm. Never sick, just allergic to jewelry and fur coats. Insists that moving furniture by herself is good for her figure. An expert in cooking, expert cleaning house, fixing the car or the TV, painting the house and keeping quiet. Favorite hobbies, mowing the lawn and shoveling the snow. Hates charge cards. Favorite expression, what can I do for you, dear? Thinks you have an Einstein brain but look like Mr. America. And wishes you would go out with the boys so that she can get some sewing done. Now, this is what he gets. She speaks 140 words a minute with gusts up to 180. (laughs) She once was a model for a totem pole. She is a light eater. As soon as it gets light, she starts eating. Where there is smoke, there is cooking. She lets you know that you only have two faults. Everything you say and everything you do. No matter what she does with it, her hair looks like an explosion in the steel wool factory. And if you get lost, just open your wallet, she'll find you. And so these, these little, you know, these are kind of funny, but there's truth in some of this that's woven through there. And when we get to respect and love, you know, we're going to explore these things a little more. But at this time, we're going to prepare to receive communion. Uh, It's that time of month where we decide we're going to honor the Lord by receiving the bread and the cup, honoring his crucifixion and his resurrection. So if the worship team would like to come up, we're going to sing a song while this is going to be passed out. And as it's passed out, if you would just hold on to it until we can all uh, partake uh, of the elements together.